Welcome to the North Shore Fellowship Podcast, a place to explore the intersection of God's story and our lives. Welcome back. My name is Chris. I'm sitting here today with Heather, Jason, and John. If you've been in our preaching series, you know that we've been going through 1 Kings, and we're about to get to the section where Solomon constructs the temple. But before we jump into all the significance of that, it's great to just start by asking, what is a temple? John? Yeah, a temple in the ancient world uh, for a long period of time, and even still today in various parts of the world. A temple be a place where people go to worship their God. They might have special imagery in that temple that means something to them. They might offer cult or sacrifices to that God, um, all sorts of special rituals that would mean something to them to communicate other things. And the Jewish temple, the one that Solomon constructs, uh, comes in a narrative of the Old Testament that looks forward and looks back and has its own rituals and its own symbolism a story grounded in the scripture. So it's a big deal as we understand the entire scriptures. We consider the theme of temple and uh, what the true and living God is communicating through it. I'd love to just give our readers five seconds to guess where in scripture this theme starts. John, go ahead and give them their grade. Okay. When anybody asks you something, where does something start in scripture? You can never go wrong by guessing Genesis one or two. Or three, depending on the theme. But if you say one of those, usually you'll be right. And temple is no different. Why is that exactly? Give us some of the framework for, for how temple shows up in those early chapters. Because the word's not in there. That's right. So it, it's not super obvious. But um, when you look at the temple, like in Solomon's construction of it, or the tabernacle, because what we know the temple is somewhat the tabernacle more established in some ways, God's special place with his people, where he can be met, the overlapping of heaven and earth or the gate of heaven, as it's sometimes referred to, that this is a special place where God dwells. And so the imagery that we see in the temple and their tabernacle is very Edenic, all sorts of precious stones, be it on the priest or what's decorating the place. You might have lush vegetation in the form of statues or um not statues so much, but uh, on curtains or lampstands, all communicating a very Edenic type of thing. And in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, it actually uses that type of imagery, that uh, where you were placed in Eden, you were placed in a place with precious stones, lust vegetation, on the mount of God, it actually refers to. So this kind of high place, not necessarily geographically, but a high special place where God is with his people, and in the biblical story, there is no statue of the God, what you would find in most ancient temples. Here you have living, breathing people. You have man and woman as the image of God in this temple-type setting, God's presence with them, and the tabernacle and temple's construction only affirms that. So God's with them in a special way in Eden because he walked with them in the garden? Yes, he walked with them. Uh, they had not been banished yet. The cherubim hadn't been to protect the place yet. Uh, he'd given them instruction as to what to do. And so any priest in a temple has very specific things they are supposed to do. God gives them instruction. And the idea is that God actually wants this Edenic space to expand the world over. So he wants more royal priests. He wants more babies made, image bearers. So he wants them to procreate. And he wants them to have dominion. 
to show dominion the world over, over the animal kingdom, over the veg, uh, vegetation, the landscape. And so Eden is meant to expand through more people in that space the world over. That is actually how God sets up the creation. So when some ruler like Saddam Hussein or Mao or Stalin or someone is, is wanting to sort of spread their empire, one of the things they do is they make all kinds of pictures of themselves and they require people to put those pictures up in coffee shops and libraries and even in people's homes in some instances. And so what Yahweh is doing, right, is he's taking his image and he's putting that on people and making us his, his statues, his real life images where the statues of, of the nations, Isaiah and all the other prophets get really riled up about this. We're different from that because those images don't speak. They don't hear. They can't see. They can't think. And we were made in God's image so we can do all those things and adequately represent him to one another and to the world around us. So he wants those images multiplied because he's interested in, in spreading his presence to the whole world, right? And, and for the whole world to be like Eden. And I think that's something of our task. That's what we're called on to do. Um, but there's a problem, right? That project gets interrupted, right? Yeah. And so when Adam and Eve are banished from this garden-like temple mount, again, as the Bible looks back on it, we do have a problem. They're banished from God's presence in a way, try to cover themselves. God grants them other covering. But in a sense, this promise or hope of people dwelling with God is not lost. And that's where we get into much of the Old Testament and how that builds. Yeah. So one of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, stories about this is, is Tolkien really sensed this, right? That we all long for Eden. There's a famous letter that he wrote to his son, Christopher, uh, who'd run his estate where he's talking about um, all of us get constant glimpses of Eden when the world seems to be put together for a moment the way it's supposed to or seems to work the way it's supposed to. Nature at its best and least corrupted. Uh, it's gentlest and most humane. But even then, it's still soaked with a sense of exile. And so God is going to be faithful along the way to give us these moments and these little pictures of, of what if it all came back together? What if heaven came back to earth? What if we weren't in exile? So yeah, when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, if you're reading your Bible, you might be wondering, well, will there ever be a sacred place again, or there be a place where God really dwells with people? And again, if you keep reading those next couple of chapters of Genesis, it looks pretty bleak. The world gets more corrupt. We have more violence spreading over the earth. We have Noah and the flame of a famous flood account. And so it looks like, well, maybe the earth is doomed. Sort of God's presence won't dwell in some special way with any particular people. That's what it looks like. But that's not actually what happens. So the first place we get, as far as the first place that is constructed, um, we have Moses meeting on Mount Sinai, this sort of temple mount imagery, God's special presence there. You even have Moses reflecting that glory. But eventually you get to the construction and instructions for the tabernacle. That as God forms his people from Abraham's lineage, he says, you're going to build me a special traveling tent that is very specific, specific wood and materials, specific outlay, that he actually gets this pattern from the heavenly order. It says, I want you to build this moving tent to go along with my people, and this will be, my presence will be here. 
So all of a sudden, again, your ears are perking up to eat in a little bit. That God has this tabernacle with lush colors and vegetation repre represented. And that God is going to be with his people as they move. I can see that connection, but can you help me understand as the tabernacle is, is God with his people? How is that then also continuing the idea that Eden was supposed to spread? It seems like to me like the tabernacle could move with the people, but how is that going to change that the people would then be able to continue to spread who God is to the world? So there's obviously a difference between a portable tent wandering around in the wilderness and, you know, an everlasting home that's permanent. And so I think God is in a sense in exile with his people, right? Like he's, you, he's acknowledging that his people are in this transient state. Um, and, uh, the, the, the structure in the ancient world that's most like the tabernacle is this, uh, this, uh, relief that we've, uh, uncovered in Egypt. I say we, not North Shore Fellowship, but uh, some other uh, professionals out there in the 19th century doing the Indiana Jones stuff, found this, uh, this, this depiction of Ramsey's portable tent, his royal tent, with the different uh, rooms and you know, people coming and going and things like this. Uh, it was oriented you know, the right way towards the sun and all these other things. And so Yahweh is essentially saying to his people, build me a tent like, like Pharaoh had, and I'm going to be your emperor. You don't need an earthly king. I'm going to be traveling around with you as we go on a military campaign. And as I find this place for you and establish you in a homeland. So you're, you really are in kind of a transient state and you're, you're looking forward to something that's more permanent. And so when you get to first Kings, I really think it feels like you've arrived, like this, this incredible sense of enthusiasm and excitement. If you buy into this this dream or this vision of God dwelling with his people, you've got to feel like that's there, right? Yeah. So that makes sense. So that's God then is going to dwell in a temple. He's been dwelling with his people as they've been transient. He's bringing them to the land that he promised them. He's going to dwell with them in the temple and they're going to be in this land the way that they were in Eden or the way that it was intended. Yeah, but with the acknowledgement, you're still in, in process because even when you're in the land, you know, we're going to see a lot of sin. And so there's a lot of need for cleansing. And that's part of the work in the temple as well. Um, so to connect that to your original question, though, Heather, um, there is still a sense of, of mission. At the end of chapter eight, this, this account of the construction of the temple, Solomon prays that, that even foreigners would come and find God here. So there, there is something missional about this. Um, there's also something missional about the the presence of God. You know, it is intended to to sort of multiply and fill the land. People are supposed to be um, uh, taking this presence with them, as it were. And uh, you see this more and more in the prophets. Uh, after the disaster, after Israel and Judah just utterly fail and the temple is destroyed, God still makes promises that the whole world is going to be full of his glory. And so you you still have this idea that, Somehow it's not just going to be one little spot of land in Jerusalem, um, but incrementally sort of growing out from there. And you'll hear a prophet say something like every pot in all of Jerusalem will be holy, not just the stuff in the temple. And you see Ezekiel's description of the temple uh, and the water flowing from it, uh, the, the, the treasures uh, spilling out of it, not just in some little geographical sense, but for thousands of miles, you know, just 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 spilling out and covering the world. 
So there, I think there's very much a sense in the Old Testament that this whole global project is still there. Um, and it's the ultimate goal for God with his Israel project is that this is going to continue to, to fill the world. Okay, so now help me make the connection between Solomon's temple and all its glory, and then we come to the story of Jesus. So we're, we're missing a piece here, and I'd like to hear what happened to Solomon's temple, or is Solomon's temple the temple that Jesus visits when he's alive, or what happens in between those stories? Yeah, so the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians when Israel or Judah goes into exile, um, and it's not rebuilt like all that well, like it's, it's, it's paltry compared to the original thing. Um, uh, Herod attempts to, to rebuild some of this and try to make his own name. Um, if you're a king of the Jews and you're building the temple, that, that makes you look like David's son, right? So he's kind of making his claim to, to be the true king of the Jews by building the physical temple up. And it was gorgeous. Uh, but Jesus goes up to this and, and, and begins to identify himself as the true temple. I think some of the, uh, some of the kids are studying something along these lines, right? The youth group is going to be talking about how Jesus told his disciples that he is the temple. Yeah. The temple of his body is the thing that needs to be destroyed and rebuilt. Yeah. And so his, his own physical body is the place where heaven and earth really fully meet. Um, that's so awesome and so mysterious, um, so beautiful, uh, that Jesus's nature as God and man, uh, is, is the true meaning of the temple or something. We could just camp out on that for quite a while. Okay. So then help me connect how the temple is still significant today. If Jesus said he's the temple and he died and rose again, how, what does the temple have to do with us today? So the temple is the favorite image for the New Testament church. Uh, Jesus uh, refers to his body, um, but when Paul talks about the body, you know, he's talking about uh, talking about us taking on that identity, the, the flesh of of Jesus um, who dwells in us. Uh, in the Old Testament, the house of God is the language for the tabernacle or temple. In the New Testament that language gets applied to us. We're the household of God or the place where he dwells, the place where people are going to encounter him as hard as that might be to believe. So um, if you just want to chase it all the way through Eden, and then these little places where God encounters the, the patriarchs like Abraham and Jacob, uh, Sinai, tabernacle, temple, and then Pentecost where the spirit of God is poured out on God's people, the church today. All these are Yahweh's way of saying that what happens in heaven doesn't stay in heaven. And that prayer that we pray, where we long for God's will to be done and his kingdom to come and his name to be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven, th those are places where that's supposed to have happened and where it can still happen today. And I think it's important to remember there are plenty of moments in church history that, gosh, you'd say the church is failing at its calling. But from what we understand in Scripture, if someone were to ask, where can I find God? Where is his spirit? An appropriate answer would be going to a church where they worship Jesus. They worship the God-man. God's spirit is there with his people. And there they find community being made right, all things being made holy to the Lord in every sense of the word. That would be wonderful if churches everywhere did that, but that is 
our goal and what we're called to do. Well, thank you, John, Jason, and Heather. It was a wonderful discussion of the temple, the origins of the idea of the temple being rooted in the garden and it stretching all the way into the new heavens and new earth and the fact that we are the temple of God now. Next time we'll be discussing the fact that we are priests of God and the significance that has for our daily lives. 